This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schulten. I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, he just wants to cast a kick to Jace. It's Matt Morgan. You guys know those little Russian nesting dolls? Yeah. Yeah, I, I hate them. They're, they're so full of themselves. I, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, I, how do I walk into your dad jokes every single I'm going to put week, that right? one in a little box, then I'm going to put it away, and then I'm going to put another <laughs> little box, and then I'm going to put and it away. And you'll put that box into another box, and then you'll mail it to yourself. This reference is getting off of the hook. Anyway, let's introduce our next co-host. His sole mission is to kick a cast, Jace. That's Dana Roach. We have finished all the Zendikar Rising uh, dual-faced land spoilers. Um, I'm kind of disappointed we did not get a new version of Temple of the False God. I was hoping we would get an improved one where both sides of the card screw you over on turn four versus the one now that only does it on one side. So that's kind of a letdown. But other than that, I really like the card so far. Well done, Dana. I, I really appreciate that. Do you have some feelings about Temple of the False God? <laughs> Small ones, but feelings nonetheless. Seems like it. Anyway, this is the EDH Rec cast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for your new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we like to do is give all that data a little more context. Fellas, what is it that we are talking about this week? How to evaluate modal spells. That is right. Zendikar, the new set, is full of cards that really force you to make a choice when you play them. So what we wanted to do is talk about how we evaluate the choices that we make when it comes to those different spells that have two separate choices, three separate choices. Sometimes you can make three choices all in one. So we wanted to talk about some philosophies behind that so that we can evaluate those new cards from Zendikar. But of course, before we do, what we want to do is give a huge shout out and thank you to the folks at the Command Zone podcast who handle all of the post-production work for our podcast here. They do 
an amazing job bringing it to the screen. It looks so awesome. And of course, we also want to thank our wonderful sponsors for the show too. Yeah, I would like to thank our sponsor, Card Kingdom. They have an amazing buy list if you have unused cards you wish to get rid of in exchange for store credit or even cash. And they have an impeccable inventory of almost any card you'd want for your deck, including new cards from brand new Sussex Undercard Rising, which they tend to ship out as soon as the packs and cards are available. We're also sponsored by TCG Player, who has thousands of individual sellers and the deepest inventory of cards online. Uh, they have foil, non-foil, old, foil, new. They have foil cards. Anything you want to put in your deck, they have copies of. Simply go to EDH Rec and click on the card in question and follow the link to the site of your preference. Doing so supports both EDH Rec and it supports us here on the EDH Reccast. And hey, speaking of sponsors, we are actually doing a giveaway. Our sponsor, CardKingdom.com, is giving away $100 worth of store credit. $100 for one of our lucky listeners. So you can get yourself a new Precon, some new Zendikar cards, or maybe save up for Commander Legends later this year, whatever you fancy. We are announcing the winners one week, just one week from when this show airs. So here is how you can win. All you have to do is leave the podcast a review, such as on like iTunes or on Google Play, and you will be entered. And if you are one of our patrons, you are actually automatically entered to win here. So leave us a review and then make sure that you are following Following us on Twitter, that's at EDHRecCast on Twitter, because that is where we will be announcing the winner. So you'll have to be following us to make sure that you see that. Again, that is at EDHRecCast on Twitter. We will be announcing the winner on the 25th, so just one week from now. Final thing, you do need to make sure that you have an account on CardKingdom.com to make sure that you are eligible to receive the store credit on CardKingdom.com, so just make sure that you've got that too. Thanks again, Card Kingdom, and our listeners and patrons for all the support. And if you would like to support the show directly, you can actually do that as well. Head over to patreon.com slash edhretcast and you can sign up to be a patron at any of our several levels that we have available. And that just is a great way to support the podcast directly. You don't have to buy any cards. You can just support us that way. You help pay the bills, keep the lights on, um, pay for Joey's hair gel. That's also very important <laughs> for the show. Um, but we appreciate all of our patrons that have signed up so far. And we actually do have our weekly patron shout out. That's going to go to who, Joey? That is going to Rachel Chamness. Rachel, thanks so much for supporting the show it's really awesome to see all of the wonderful folks that are supporting us and matt uh, joey i do i do think rachel pronounces her last name chamne it's french i you know what you're the person who's who accused me of using gel in my hair so first of all how dare you <laughs> you don't me. get to. moose moose <laughs> Or is it a high-quality hair serum? It's pronounced yell, I believe, Joey. Yell, not gel. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, thank you so much to Rachel and to the rest of our patrons for supporting the show. Uh, this is quite the start, you guys. This is a great one. All right, let's actually just get right into the main topic before we can derail the show any further. We are talking about modal spells. Matt, let's just start off with a basic definition. What is a modal spell in Magic? Well, a modal spell takes form in many different ways in magic, but basically it's a spell with several different ways that you can have it resolve. And there's different modes as you will, which is why we call them modal spells. Uh, you have multiple options when you cast it. Um, they can come in the form of anything like a, you know, choose X different versions. There's cards like charms and commands and confluences, a lot of C's in these modal spells I hear. Um, or it can just be something that you choose when it comes into play. Uh, the sieges are something like that. Um, or uh, the, the split cards in many different for, uh, sets that have come in. Those also only have one real mode that you choose when it is cast. So there's all sorts of different ways. There's almost as many different modes that they come in when you have all these different modal spells. 
Yeah, and these can be really awesome because they provide you such a cool degree of flexibility during the game. So, you know, you mentioned one of the charms. Take, for example, the card Boros charm. You've got three different options and you can pick one of those. And that's how we sort of colloquially understand charms to be in the game of magic. They've got three different options and you can pick one when you cast the spell. And Boros charm is cool because it can deal damage or it can give double strike or it can give your stuff indestructible. And so that can really save your skin in the right situation or it can be a great offensive tool. And those can just really provide you with an awesome degree of flexibility during a game. So modal spells can be really, really cool, but you are also occasionally paying for that flexibility sometimes. Maybe the charms are a little bit pricier to cast, for example. Um, so that is definitely something we want to get into. But before we actually even move on into specific examples of these, I feel like it's also important for us to acknowledge that there are some cards that don't specifically, you know, have like the, the colloquial charms or confluences. There aren't necessarily cycles, but there are still plenty of other ways that cards can be modal too. For example, like the card Chaos warp. That also strikes me as kind of a quote-unquote modal spell because I might use that offensively to get rid of a problematic permanent so that I can, you know, attack my opponent when they no longer have a propaganda in play, for instance, but I can also use it defensively to get rid of someone else's creature that's coming to attack me. So there are a lot of hidden choices, a lot of dual choices that you can find even on just like a basic removal spell. Yeah, like I would say if you've played Commander for any amount of time, you have either done this or seen somebody else use a source to plowshares and their own creature just to get enough life to survive what someone else thought was going to be an alpha strike or something coming through. Mm -hmm. um, like those kind of things, those aren't necessarily modal spells, but there are cards that have an option on them to be treated as a modal spell. Yeah, or the card Twin Cast also kind of comes to mind, and that's a spell that can copy target instant or sorcery spell, mm -hmm. which is really, really cool because if someone else does something really flashy, you can copy that spell. Or if someone tries to counter your spell, you can copy their counter spell. Or if you cast a really great spell, then you can get two of them. Like that is also a ton of different options. So really when it comes to the modal spells, one of the biggest ingredients is definitely their flexibility. And it's just tough to figure out, is that flexibility worth the cost and the timing and all of that jazz? So let's try and evaluate some different examples of modal spells and especially seeing where they sort of land according to EDH rec. Uh, Dana, do you want to start us off by talking about some of the charms, for instance, that we see in EDH? Charms are probably kind of the first thing that at least comes to my mind when I think about modal spells, uh, particularly the, the ones from Ravnica, although those I don't think were the original charms. I think we had prior to that some monocolor ones, but but the Ravnica charm cycle is kind of the iconic modal spell, at least in my mind. Things like Boros charm or Rakdos charm, um, and those two in particular are the two most popular charms we see out there um, and two of the most popular like very clearly modular spells you have. Boros Charm is two mana and it has three very useful modes. You hit somebody for four damage, permanents you control gain indestructible, or target creature gains double strike. Those are all three really useful abilities that aren't terribly priced at two mana. Mm -hmm. Rakdos Charm, same thing. Exile all cards from target player's graveyard, which can save Rude. you from right, yeah, uh, but can save you from like a you know a, a living death that absolutely is going to end the game. Destroy target artifact, almost always useful, and each creature deals one damage with controller, which can just win you games sometimes. <laughs> like I've paid six mana for that particular effect. Yeah, yeah, sometimes, yeah. So I, I think 
the the important point here, particularly with these first two, but this generally applies to the third one on our list here, Golgari Charm as well. All of those modes are useful and they're relatively efficiently costed at two mana. Right. Yeah. I mean, just the, the ability to have very relevant options available at any given point in time is probably why the charms from Return to Ravnica, Dana, not original Ravnica, Return to Ravnica was when the charms came out. Yes. Uh, just having something that's going to be relevant at any given point in the, t- in the game, uh, that's going to lead to a high amount of play because Boros Charm, like you said, Joey, you can use it offensive or defensively. You can use it defensively to save your entire uh, board mm-hmm. uh, in case of a, a Wrath of God coming down. Or say you're going for an Alpha Strike with a very big creature, you can give that creature double strike and then win offensively. So there's so much cool stuff you can be doing with a lot of these charms. Some of them... Not quite as powerful as the others, but these three definitely, uh, if you are playing in those colors, they have to be at least in that initial pile of 130 cards that you're looking at for any given deck. <laughs> yeah, and and what's so cool about these in particular, like Dana mentioned, like a lesson I really think we ought to take here is how efficiently costed these are. I would mm-hmm. pay two mana for any one of these effects for another card that didn't have those same modal options. Golgari Charm, for example, has that regenerate each creature you control clause. Well, I mean, Heroic Intervention is a really, really good card, and that is also two mana that helps save your board in that way. Maybe that's not a great example, but like there's the card Rapid Vigor, for instance, which is also two mana to regenerate your whole team. So yeah, these effects are all kind of costed around the two mana so that makes me perfectly comfortable paying that much mana for any one of these so it's hardly a loss to be paying mana for the extra degree of flexibility that I get here for one of these options compared to some of the stinky charms like Orzov charm I think is the least played one and it's like two mana and you can return a creature you control and all auras attached to it to their owner's hand Eh, or you can destroy a target creature and you lose life equal to its toughness. I don't really want to pay two mana for that. I can just pay one mana for a path to exile. Or you can like reanimate a one cost creature from your graveyard. Like none of these effects are really worth two mana compared to the other charms that are way more popular. Well, I think that the beauty of the the really good charms, and I think we're going to mention this as we talk about other things as well. The ones that really shine are ones where you might well pay that cost to run that spell even if it wasn't modular. Uh, Boros Charm, mm-hmm. the ability to give your permanent indestructible to end a turn for two mana to, to dodge a board wipe, that's maybe worth it if that's just that spell. If that's all that spell does for two mana, there's right. decks that, that's probably worth it. Um, Golgari Charm, there's probably decks where re- regenerating your entire board for two mana is worth that spell if that's all it does. Um, so, so that's where I think it becomes super easy to evaluate a modular spells where the other modes almost become irrelevant. One mode is so good you're willing to pay for it. The rest is just like free value. There gets free real estate. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh my goodness. I feel like that particular meme might come up later on in the show when we start talking about those Zendikar lands. Anyway, uh, let's move on now. Those aren't the only types of charms. There are also the ones from Cons of Tarkir, and this is where things get a little bit more complicated. When we start looking at those charms, these are the three color ones. Uh, Sorry, it's Cons of Tarkir and from Alara, because we've got cards like Sultai Charm. That's the, of course, Sultai 1, the green, the black, the blue, and you can choose one, destroy a monocolored creature, destroy an artifact or enchantment, or you draw two cards and then discard a card. That one's showing up in like 10% of decks that 
and play it. Same is also true for a personal favorite charm of mine, Naya Charm, that's red, green, and white. It is an instant, you can choose one, you deal three damage to a creature, it can return a card from a graveyard to its owner's hand, or it can tap all creatures target player controls. Those are some examples of three color charms, and I feel like things do start getting a little bit more complicated here, because I'll be honest, when I look at those two, the most popular three color charms, Sultai Charm and Naya Charm, I like one of them and I don't like the other. And as an avowed Sultai player, I'm surprised to find out that I don't like the Sultai charm nearly as much as I like the Naya charm. Well, I don't blame you for not really liking the Sultai charm. The the removal aspect of it being limited to a monocolor creature, I'd be really interested to see if only we had somebody who wrote articles at EDH rec with this type of idea, but (laughs) like the percentage of the top played creatures in the format that actually are hit by Sultai charm. I know there's powerhouses, especially when it comes to commanders that are usually important to keep off the battlefield, only being able to hit monocolor creatures. That is quite the drawback. You have several other spells that can be doing that. Uh, the, the draw two cards and discard a card mode on Sultai charm. That's probably the best one. And, and at least the, Uh, most fairly costed when it comes to mana cost. Um, but Naya Charm has the two very rele- relevant abilities and it's just Naya Colors. So I don't really blame you for liking it a little bit more. Oh, oh no, no. I love Naya Charm because it can tap down an enemy army, both if you want to attack them or if you're about to be attacked. Mm-hmm. It can deal damage to utility creatures. It can get back important cards or be used as a political tool in all of these ways. Sultai Charm, it's funny for me to hear you say that you like the draw ability on Sultai Charm because I feel like that's the mode on this I never want to use. I also don't particularly want to pay three mana to destroy an artifact or enchantment. And I also don't know that I'll ever use the monocolored creature destruction effect here because that is a lot more niche. Like the cards that I want to kill are usually people's commanders, which tend to be really, really multicolored. Um, So like, I don't feel like this is another lesson for me when I'm looking at modal spells. There are some illusions of choice here. I'm never actually going to use all of these different modes. So it's nice to have the flexibility, but a lot of these situations won't actually come up all that often for me to want to use a card slot on this. Uh, two additional factors with the three color charms as well. Um, number one, you're paying three mana. So what you're expecting to get in return for a three mana investment versus a two mana investment is is much more. Mm-hmm. And I generally think I don't know if you're getting that much additional value over the really, really great two color charms. Uh, additionally, you're looking at one of each color in a three-color deck, that's much trickier to hit for the most part than one of each color in a two-color deck. So right. not only is the mana cost in terms of like sheer mana you're putting in more expensive, the difficulty of doing that, unless you have an absolutely perfect mana base, and, and, and even if you do it, what it affects in terms of other spells you want to cast um, makes it more challenging too. So I think the big problem with the three-color charms is they just use up more and um, you're not getting that amount of value back for the most part. Naya Charm may be being the exception. Yeah, gotcha. All right, now let's move on away from the charms. There are tons of other different types of modal spells. In fact, we probably won't be able to even put all of them into the show, though we are going to try. Let's move on to another type of modal spell. Matt, do you mind telling us about some of those commands? The command cycle. So these are, I think, the command-specific cycle. That was back from Lorwyn days, I want to say, correct? Mm-hmm. So these are also very, very powerful, but these are choose two. So you get to choose two of the different modes on any given 
one of these cards. The most commonly played ones are going to be Austere Command, which is the white command, and then Cryptic Command, which is the blue one. Um, so Austere Command, it sees played about 12% of all white decks, which is a pretty significant number. Um, but that one is for white white, and you get to choose two between destroy all artifacts, you can destroy all enchantments, uh, destroy all creatures with converted mana cost three or less, or destroy all creatures with converted mana cost four or greater. So it's a nice little board wipe. And board wipes are always one of white's greatest strengths when it comes to commander. So it's not really surprising to see such a flexible board wipe getting so much play. Like I, I'm not sure if I would call Austere Command the best board wipe in the game. Um, I think it depends on what you want to do. You know, the efficiency of Blasphemous Act is amazing. Deluge sure. is super cheap to cast, and it gets run indestructible, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. But it's really, really close. Um, it's real good. <laughs> I put it, I, I, it's in every one of my white decks, and I just can't imagine a situation where that isn't the case. The flexibility, not only to, to destroy the things that are a problem for you, but to not destroy the things that are a strength on your board state, the ability to weave around your strengths and hit the, the things that are a problem is amazing. It's a fantastic card, and I never, ever feel bad about drawing it in a deck. Oh, yeah. I feel so safe when I have an austere yeah. command in my hand. And for me, a lesson that I personally derive when looking at cards like these is their timing. Like, when are these modes going to be good? And in these particular cases, like, all of these are sort of when you're behind, except when you realize that, oh, if I have a lot of enchantments, but someone else has a lot of artifacts, I can punish them in this way. It isn't necessarily just that I'm a, you know, when I'm behind. There, there isn't just one quadrant of the game, one space within the game where this spell can be efficient. I can use this when I'm behind and when I'm ahead. So the flexibility doesn't just exist on the card, it exists on the clock. And that's what's so fascinating about them too. And that is a huge ingredient when you were evaluating a modal spell is when are you going to cast them? When are those modes at their best, at their peak? And Austere Command is just flying colors in terms of that. Yeah, it, there isn't really ever a bad situation to draw a Austere Command once the game has kind of progressed a little bit. And like you guys said, it's so so versatile in what it can hit. Uh, I've, I've seen Austere Command be a one-sided board wipe because there's an Enchantress player with three different Enchantress cards out there. So they just chose uh, to destroy all enchantments, destroy all creatures with converted mana cost three or less. And that one player was completely blown out. And they were they, it was one of those wor uh, first to worst type of situations where they were running away with the game, but they were pulled back because this card is so flexible and so powerful. I, I love it. I'm with Dana. This try I try to put one into pretty much any of my white decks. All right, so continuing through some other examples of modal spells, there's also the cycle of confluences. Yeah, we're looking at uh, the most popular being Mystic Confluence, three blue blue, five mana for an instant. Choose three, but you may choose the same mode more than once, which tends to be relatively important in these. Mm -hmm. uh, Mystic Confluence, counter target spell that's controller pays three mana, return target creature to its owner's hand, or draw a card. Uh, so very often Mystic Confluence, you can get away with just using the counter target spell mode one time and drawing then two cards for yourself. That feels pretty good, stopping whatever giant thing somebody do did and walking away two cards up. That it really, really oftentimes feels fantastic. I actually, in Commander at least, like Mystic Confluence way more than the uh, uh, the strong modern Cryptic Command, the blue version of the commands. I very much agree that this is probably better for Commander. For Commander. For yeah, for, for multiple reasons. I mean, Cryptic Command is a very, very powerful card, but most times people just counter target spell, draw a card. 
99% of the time it's, it's a dismiss most of the time and no one really exactly. runs dismiss but it's harder to, it's it's triple blue to cast a dismiss whereas mystic confluence only double blue in the in the math in the casting cost yeah but you can like you said you can draw two cards you can get one of all three modes or say you just really need to cast that and they have extra mana laying around you can you know counter target spell let's say pay six and then draw a card or bounce something important it's it's so flexible and i think that's why mystic confluence when it comes to the confluences is the most played because you there there's so many ways to play with it it's so good i mean a, a five mana draw three at instant speed doesn't feel terrible exactly like if i'm if that's the worst case scenario on this one that still feels really really fine yeah like i i particularly love that compared to some of the other confluences like wretched confluence for instance which is uh like five mana also an instant you can draw a card and lose a life or you can give a creature minus two or you can return creatures from your graveyard to the hand like if i repeat a bunch of those modes like i don't know those are all much smaller use cases and i think that that sort of bears it out in the fact that wretched confluence doesn't see nearly as much play and probably won't ever like i don't feel like if i just want to cast this spell like all of the worst case scenarios actually do feel a little bit worse in the terms of wretched confluence compared to other cards that i could be casting in that card slot if i want a card draw spell i probably have more efficient options than this in the color black if i want to get creatures back from my graveyard i could probably put them just right onto the battlefield if i want to give creatures minus i probably got other things that can destroy creatures a little bit more efficiently than this and that's just one of those where the flexibility isn't nearly as good compared to the you know other confluences that we see it's not always spells though sometimes we also have in enchantments. Matt, you mentioned the sieges earlier that are also pretty modal. I did. So the siege cycle that we're going to talk about is from Cons of Tarkir block, and that's going to take place in the form of enchantments this time around. Uh, The most popular siege card being Outpost Siege, which is the red one, Um, and it's three and a red and has uh, two different modes. So when Outpost Siege enters the battlefield, you choose cons or dragons. Uh, When you have the cons mode chosen, at the beginning of your upkeep, you exile the top card of your library, and until the end of the turn, uh, you can play that card. So it's a nice little input pulse draw that gets you some sort of card advantage, kind of like Phyrexian Arena does in black. Um, but you also have the Dragon's Mode, where whenever a creature you control leaves the battlefield, Outpost Siege deals one damage to target creature or player, or just, I believe it's any target nowadays. But that is insanely powerful as well. And both of these modes, I know in my Valduk deck, for example, mm-hmm. I have cast both sides many, many times over. Well, this is yep. a perfect example of one of those cards we talked about where it's good enough with one mode. Um, mm-hmm. Now, red has gotten draw options in the last couple of years that maybe don't make it the case so much anymore. But for a lot of years there, Outpost Siege just choosing cons mode to get that extra card was absolutely worth it if you never, ever even considered the Dragon's mode um, in mono red in Boros, absolutely worth playing. And to have another free option that's also really good. Um, right. This card is uh, is still really good, but for a long time was amazing. Yeah, that's that's my lesson with it, especially with the Outpost Siege is just like I have seen, I think it's like Perforos decks or even Torbrand decks, heaven forbid, that can use just the pingy ability on this particular one. And when they build the deck, that might be the only thing that they ever intend to use with this spell or the other way around. They can build an entire deck based off of the fact that they only ever intend to use one mode on this spell. And it's still good enough in that situation. And then there's also gravy on top. Yeah, it's it, it's there's no bad case scenario without post siege it's yeah i mean it is the most played siege for a very good reason because it does a lot of things that red needed for a while and it, it does kind of stink dana that one card per turn almost isn't good enough anymore sure um 
it's it's a weird situation to be in now. Another form of modular cards that are relatively popular in the format are the split cards that first showed up back in Invasion. Um, but I think they really kind of arose to prominence in Dragon's Maze of all sets, not the most <laughs> beloved expansion of Magic's history. But in, in Invasion, what they added was a, a, a ability called Fuse, which lets you actually have the option to cast both halves of the card versus previously and basically since then, whenever we've seen split cards, where you have to choose. So the the fuse cards are ones that have really probably seen the most play of the split cards. Wear and Tear in particular is really, really popular. It's in over 10,000 decks. And the two modes there are very simple. You have one in a red, destroy target artifact, which is Shatter from way back in Alpha. And the other mode for a single white, destroy target enchantment. Or do you confuse them both and just spend three mana and destroy an artifact and an enchantment at instant speed as well? Um, really solid. Yeah, really, really solid. I, like, I don't think you run Shatter anymore, and I'm not sure you run, is it a race? It's a one mana white to destroy target enchantment. I think that's right. Yeah, I believe so. Um, I, I don't know if you want either of those two, but having them both stapled to one card with the option to cast them both simultaneously is really, really efficient. With that said, like I feel like the split cards are a really big example of how obviously clunky sometimes they can be. Like I look at the card down and dirty, for instance, and I'm just like, I don't think I kind of want either of these effects. Like actually, okay, three mana for the recovery effect, get a card back from the graveyard, sure. But man, I'm never going to use the other half of this ever. So why am I spending extra mana on this effect when I'm never going to play the other half? So that is another big thing for the split cards too, I think. It's like, are, when are you actually going to use all of the modes on this? Well, and, and for me, I think that boils down to kind of a, a point maybe that applies to all of these modal spells is how much mana are you investing to get that effect versus right. just that card at face value? Mind Rot is a mana less on down. Uh, and even then, that's not really played all that often in Commander. So I don't blame you for not wanting to, to cast the down version or down half, I should say, of down and dirty because mana wise, when you just compare it to what is that one effect on a card? How much does that cost? How often is that played? That's a very, very good question to be asking with all of these modal spells. Mm -hmm. So those are a ton of different cycles, a ton of really big examples of them. But like, are there other modal spells, other cards that present different options that jump out to you guys that are really fun to play, that you have maybe interesting lessons to learn about? What are some other choicey cards that you see a lot in EDH that get your brain a whirring? So if we want to talk about cards that are just really, really good that have modes in general. Um, you know, we mentioned how great Austere Command was, and we were all very much on board with that card. Merciless Eviction, sure. at the same exact cost, um, at least CMC, it's it's six mana, it requires black and white. Um, choose one, exile all artifacts or creatures or enchantments or planeswalkers. Um, exile's a big deal in some metas, and, and depending on who you're playing against, but the again, it's the ability to flex around what's either the problem or flex around whatever your strength is. It's so versatile. Again, I feel like if I have access to black and white, I would have a really tough time not finding room for Merciless Eviction. And, and Merciless Eviction is one of those cards that people, they see it and it looks overcosted, um, but it, it really isn't. Like you said, the exile effect and being able to play around what you have going on in, on your own battlefield is it's really important actually and then being able to hit planeswalkers uh, if yeah. you have you know even two on the battlefield chances are the man investment that you're spending compared to what you're getting rid of off the board you're probably coming out ahead with planeswalkers that are, are 
well designed for commander at least and you know as far as board wipes go too um it's probably the card the most often i've heard referenced in a game where someone says well let's see if i can top deck a merciless eviction that's what i think that's going to solve this problem yeah <laughs> you know for whatever reason it's that card that there are just those situations where you're like there's a dark skill citadel out what am i going to do right now or there's 14 planeswalkers in play or whatever it is or, or a regular board wipe is going to give joey death triggers i mean right, i know yeah, that in yeah. games that we've played that's come up mm-hmm. more than more than zero times um, but one modal card I want to bring up, and not not to say Merciless Eviction isn't powerful because it certainly is, um, but Return of the Wild Speaker, mm. folks. If you haven't cast this, this card is nuts. Um, so it's five mana, it's just four in a green for an instant that says choose one, uh, draw cards equal to the greatest power among non-human creatures you control, or non-human creatures you control get plus three plus three until end of turn. Um, a team wide plus three plus three buff at instant speed is wild it is so powerful so if you're going for alpha strike or if you're blocking and you need to save some blockers this is an insanely powerful way to do it and then the draw card it's just rish car's expertise only a little bit different um, it doesn't target which gets around a lot of instant speed removal you're still going to be drawing you know even if things go wrong you can still draw three cards at instant speed which again is is very very good it's the same thing that we mentioned with mystic confluence this card is so flexible. The fact that it's only been picked up in 6% of green decks since it came out, um, I'm going to challenge the stats and just say that needs to get <laughs> a lot more play. We're not at challenge the stats yet, Mr. That's Morgan, a freebie for the people. It is It is a really good one. Uh, there's one final type of modal card that I feel like we probably should also hit because a really interesting conversation came up a while back between us and Dana when we started discussing the card Disallow, a three mana counter spell that can let you counter uh, target spell, activated ability, or triggered ability. When I first saw this, man, I loved it. I've been a big fan of Void Slime ever since the original Dissension set, which has basically the same ability. Like, I'm so on board for this type of flexibility. It strikes me as such a cool counter spell. But Dana doesn't like this one very much. He took it out of his decks. Why is that? So, and I loved the card as well when it was first spoiled. Um, picked up, you know, half a dozen copies, assuming it was going to go in all my blue decks, and it did. Um, but what I discovered, um, and, and this might not be a reflection on Disallow so much as it is how I brew and how I play, but what I discovered was, at least for me, it was just a cancel. 99% of the time, I was using it for a counter spell and not using it to stop activated or triggered abilities. So the, the kind of the conversation we had was, at some point, a modal spell where you're paying more for the modal option ceases to be modal if you only ever use one mode. Right. Um, I understand the logic of saying, well, it's nice to have the option, but you're paying for that option. And at some point, the... The, the downside of that, paying that extra mana for the cancel versus the counterspell, is going to add up and cause you problems versus that one time you stop someone from blasting with an Aetherflux Reservoir. Yeah. So, and that's really difficult to calculate. Like, I don't know how you calculate that other than just in your head, kind of based on games you've played and your personal experiences. But at least for me, 
I was paying a tax on disallow for a whole lot of games and very infrequently ever collecting the the bonus that came with having two other modes. I mean, this is kind of reflected in a counterspell journey I had where I was like, oh, Swan Song is so cool. Swan Song is really great. And like, it is really great. Like counter a spell for one minute. That's awesome. But I very quickly started moving to Stubborn Denial because I realized the times I wanted that counterspell were almost always to counter spells that were attempting to remove my commander. And I really needed my commander to be around. And so why bother with the other upside? My commander always had the four power ferocious bonus. So I was just basically always going to do the same thing this one was slightly better but the times that you're intending to use this spell like because dana you even noted you would specifically hold disallow in your hand because you knew you had spells to counter coming down the line as opposed to abilities down the line and like just observing specifically when you intend to cast that spell is i just think a huge part of evaluating modal spells and these are all lessons that we want to apply now as we move to talk about the new zendikar stuff because there's a ton of modal spells there's other new cards with kicker which present different options and especially there's those zendikar spell double-faced modal lands So it will be really cool to evaluate those. But before we do, we've got to challenge some stats because it is our favorite part of the show where we take a critical look at the data on EDH rec and say, hmm, is this seeing too much play? Is this seeing too little play? Matt, how about you start us off? Let's challenge some stats. So my challenge this week, it's for a commander that I think I've been building. I'm not sure who the commander is going to be, but I'm leaning towards Jund. And obviously, since I'm playing Jund, uh, Korvold, Faker's King, is one of those commanders that you almost have to consider at least at some point. So looking at Korvald decks, I see actually that Butcher of Malakir is still being played in about 30% of decks out there, which is quite a bit. It's plus 11% synergy over the typical black deck, um, which is a significant amount. And we've talked about this several times throughout the history of the podcast, but I do want to formally challenge it, I guess, here. It's a Butcher Malakir in Korvold decks is just, it's overplayed at this point. Seven mana is a lot of mana to be playing for a creature that can get answered instantly. And yes, Butcher Malakir, I probably should read the card. Uh, five black black for a 5-4 vampire warrior with flying. And then it has the dictative Erebos text where whenever Butcher of Malakir or another creature you control dies, each opponent sacrifices a creature. Now, you do have other options. Like I said, Dictative Erebos, which is five mana, and it's an enchantment, so it's a little bit harder to deal with. Um, you also have Grave Pact, which is it's triple black, but also has the same effect, and it comes in enchantment. I think you only want so many versions of this type of effect, and for seven mana, somebody can answer that really, really easily, and I don't think that's exactly where you want to be with your mana in a Korvold deck, even though, yes, Korvold sacrifices a ton of creatures, so I hear. Um, I recall somebody actually doing a upping the average video on Korvold oh, yeah. recently, Yep. Um, and this card was one of the cards that got cut from the average deck. That it was. I 100% agree with that call, Joey. I just, Butcher Malak here is just too mana inefficient, uh, and I think if you want this effect, there are better ways to be doing it. Yeah, happen to agree. And uh, definitely check out that video if you haven't yet, because it was a whole lot of fun. But yeah, it's just a whole lot of mana for this effect. So completely on board with you there, Matt. Dana, how about you? I'm going to look at a card here that I think is a little bit underplayed. Um, it's only in a thousand decks, just over a thousand. Um, I feel like if there was a two mana enchantment that said all your creatures become unblockable, people would run it way, way more. Um, Bower Passage effectively says that in a deck with a bunch of flyers. Bower mm. Passage reads, creatures with flying can't block creatures you control. Um, now, yes, flying already is a form of evasion, but in Commander, it's probably a less 
reliable form of evasion than it is in other formats. There's so many creatures in Commander with flying, and if your deck is built around heavily flying creatures, whether it's a, you know a, a, a Bant Angel deck or a lot of times Dragon Tribal decks tend to lean into green. There's some bird decks that are in Bant. There's multiple different flying decks that have the ability to splash green or running a heavy amount of flyers, and the ability to just drop Bower Passage for two mana and have the only things that can block your stuff be spiders, basically, <laughs> is really, really effective in those particular decks. And I think, number one, it's a relatively old card at this point, but number two, it, the, the synergy isn't really necessarily apparent unless you think about it or, or specifically are searching up cards that interact with flying. I think people just aren't aware how effective this card is in some decks, and I think it should be in more than just 1,006 lists on EDH rack. All right. That's a really, really clever one. Dana, my challenge this week is sort of in your honor, but it is also in honor of one of our patrons. Remember, we do have the Patreon tier that you can subscribe to to submit challenge the stats. You can, of course, submit challenge the stats to us via email, but these are the ones we're definitely going to see because, man, we get deluge with a whole lot of different requests. This one comes from Connor Gandy, one of our patrons. He would like to challenge a card that, Dana, it feels like this one's definitely for you because it's an old card that I'd never heard of before. This is the card Aftershock. Uh, Connor tells us it currently sees play in only 605 decks, but I think it should be seeing more play specifically in mono red decks. Aftershock is a four mana sorcery in red that lets you destroy target artifact, creature, or land, and then it deals three damage to you. This is a way to destroy creatures in mono red without having to rely upon damage-based removal. It says destroy target creature in mono red, exclaims Connor. And uh, yeah, this is a pretty clever one. Card I'd never heard of before. If you're looking for a way to destroy creatures without having to rely on damage and you're playing mono red this is definitely one you should consider and again you know talking about modular spells with the relevant modes um that feels pretty okay in mono red to spend four mana to destroy any creature basically that doesn't have indestructible but if you need to desperately use it to destroy an artifact or destroy someone's maze of aether cabal coffers that probably mm -hmm. feels okay too that probably feels okay too, but I feel like you brought up the Cabal Coffers thing to <laughs> specifically target this back at me. It feels less okay if it's your Cabal Coffers. Yeah, it's not okay at all. Never mind. This is a horrible challenge. All right, let's move on. What we want to do now is move into a discussion about the modal double-faced land cards from Zendikar. When you play these, you have the option of playing them as a land or as a spell. And this is kind of making us scratch our heads, I think, a little bit as a community. Maybe people have figured it out by the time this episode comes out, but for us, we're still you know, we're two weeks behind everyone. These are really fascinating cards, and we kind of wanted to take all the lessons we know about the way that we evaluate modal spells previously to the game, and now we'll apply them here to all of these new spells. So the important thing we're probably going to talk about a, a lot here for this back half of the show is the concept of, of opportunity cost, and that's the the loss of potential gain from other alternatives when one alternative is chosen. So when you have multiple choices on a card and you choose one, what have you lost by, in this case, not choosing other modes or by running a modular card that in a lot of cases has a tax baked into it by virtue of being a modular card. So that's gonna be the key to evaluating a lot of these is figuring out what the cost you are paying to have the opportunity to run these cards that can be multiple things. 
uh, the first ones we'll kind of look at here are probably the easiest ones to evaluate. And those are the, the, the dual lands that can be either thing. The first example we'll go with here, just because it's what's on the sheet in front of me, is, <laughs> is Clearwater Pathway and Murkwater Pathway. So this is a, a dual-faced card that on one side has Clearwater Pathway, which is just a land that taps for a blue mana, and it doesn't come into play tapped. The other side, Murkwater Pathway, is just a land, doesn't come into play tapped, that taps for a black mana. So it's a land that can always tap the first turn, it just forces you to choose which mode or which side you want when you play it, and it will only make that color of mana from here on out. What do you guys think of these? I think they're interesting. Um, I I, I, I want to start off because I, I am struggling with some of the spell versions of these where it's a spell on one side and a land on the other. As a land cycle, though, I really like these. I like the design space. I like what they're exploring here. I, th I think it's a very, very cool way to, to play with dual lands um, and giving you a, a permanent feeling of, of that choice lasting on beyond what is a spell immediately doing. Uh, as far as commander goes, though, when it comes to duels, I'm a big fan of having access to both colors at all times, though. So if I'm going to play a dual land, I want to have two colors, not just on one turn or have the option to, to have that, but I want both or my lands to be, you know, providing me mana of both colors moving forward for the rest of the game. So it's an interesting situation. I only like these in two color decks. I don't think in three or more color decks, these are really what you want to be doing with your mana fixing. Um, but I, like I said, I really like the design space. And I think they are fairly elegant for having some sort of, oh, I really need black mana well, this is going to come in untapped. So you're able to, to get that untapped mana on the turn that you need it. But there is, like you said, a little bit of a choice um, that comes along with the deck building that I think is very, very interesting. Right. The the thing that you have to evaluate here is, is this flexibility worth the alternative tempo? Uh, because you could play a tapped land that gives you both of your colors if you're, for example, in a two-color deck. And that would be really great because then you can flip from a triple green spell to a triple black spell uh, later on. Or you can flip from a, a triple white spell to a quadruple red spell or something later on in the game but these would really prevent you from being able to do that but they also can enter untapped like how quick is your deck that might be definitely a factor for these matt i totally agree i like the design space here but i would say they definitely relegate to a two color deck for me as well i don't want to play these in a three color or more deck because the flexibility becomes a lot more desirable there so and since i was discussing opportunity cost we should mention that the downsides of these they do come into play untapped but they don't have a basic land type, so they are they are challenging to fetch. Mm -hmm. You can't use a fetch land to get them. You're you're stuck using something like expedition map or something. Um, so because of that, that's that's a downside. They're not going to work with like a mana doubler or something that cares about you know a basic land type. They are going to get hit by a back to basics or by a blood moon. So there is some slight risk that comes with having the ability to play a land that can be one or the other. Yeah. Um, and I agree. I think I think in a three color deck, you don't want a land that can only provide you one color of mana necessarily. And I think the problem in a two color deck, I don't know if we need them. I think five or six years ago, they might have been much better. I think today we've gotten so many dual land cycles in the last few years. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think unless you're on a budget and they're probably going to be relatively cheap. And I think if you're on a budget, 
They're probably excellent in a two-color deck. Um, but I think if you are able to spend enough money to pick up shock land level lands, I just don't know if you need them over the duels you're going to run in addition to, you know, your dozen to 14 to 16 basics. See, I don't even think you need to upgrade these only with shock lands. I think a lot of the check lands like Hinterland Harbor and Dragon Skull Summit, those types of lands, those are going to be fine too. I think yeah. the, the Battle Bond lands... I prefer those, and and those aren't Shockland price. Yeah, um, I think these are going to get a lot of play in standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think once they rotate out, or if you know the the colors that don't see a lot of play in standard, those will be fairly cheap for you to pick up. Um, but like you said, I, I I don't think these are going to be very very good in three color decks because they're only providing you access to one of those colors. Um, I think at that point, I know you guys aren't big on the thriving lands from Jumpstart, but that's what I would rather play, I think, because it's going to get you the color that you need along with another color that's coming up. So I I, I put these in like the same tier of dual lands as maybe like the Shadows over Innistrad lands where you have to kind of reveal the, the uh, basic in your hand in order for them to come in untapped. But those, again, my big constraint with these for Commander where mana fixing is, is pretty important, um, you only have access to one color while these are on the battlefield. And for me, that's that's why I'm the most hesitant hesitant on these. So an- another thing for me, and it's something that Dana alluded to earlier, is that the ability to fetch up a basic land is actually really, really important. There are mm-hmm. some type of there are some decks, there are some strategies that really require you to have basics to fetch. There's the landfall, but then there's also for me as a player who really enjoys those cabal coffers that the aftershock keeps on destroying, which is really rude of everyone, by the way. <laughs> um, but like I really want to have a lot of swamps, which is what kind of makes me trepidatious about not just this dual land cycle, but sort of the rest of the cycle when we start moving now into a discussion of the spells that are also lands on the other side. There are the mythics, for example. They all have sort of like triple in their cost. They have really bombastic spells on one side and they can enter the battlefield untapped on the other side if you pay three life. So there's actually kind of three decisions happening here. You can save these as a really big late game spell or you can play them as a tapped land or you can sacrifice a little bit of life to regain some of that tempo. But like... I, it's so funny for me looking at these big mythic spells. There's the Agadim's Awakening, there's Seagate Restoration. These are fascinating and they hit a, a checkbox for me on modal spells that I would think is really awesome because like they can be an early game play. They're good there when I'm developing, I just play a tapped land and they can be a really great late game play too. So like this is hitting multiple quadrants. I should love that. And yet when I look at all of these, especially the mythic ones, I'm kind of just underwhelmed, which is really surprising to me, but I don't think I like too many of these mythic flip lands all that much. See, I, I agree with you, but I think for different reasons. I I do agree that maybe the spells aren't quite flashy, um, but for me, I think the, the poor deck building habits that these are going to encourage in a lot of players is where they're going to really do their damage. Uh, I see so many people, so many people saying, oh, I can just pull a a basic for these, or I can pull a land for these, um, and it's fine. And I think that is 100% the wrong call. Um, A really, really good stance that I heard, um, Brian Gottlieb, who he does the Arena Decklist podcast with Jerry Thompson, two very, very intelligent players. They're uh, very, very successful. They are talking about putting these in decks, but having them filling a spell slot. So they're eventually going to be going up to effectively 35 or 40 lands in a standard deck. Um, where you don't want these to be 
taking up a spot in your commander deck in the land slot because more often than not, you're going to be playing these as a land uh, because, and, and Brian puts this much more eloquently than I can. Um, definitely check out the Arena Decklist podcast where they're talking about the the Zendikar previews because they put it very, very well that basically you want to maximize your chances of playing games all the time, which means making sure you're hitting your land drops. I think people are going to put these in their decks and they're big splashy spells. They're going to want to hold on to them as long as possible to cast any of these dual face spells. And I think that's going to put people in kind of a weird position where you need to hit your land drop. So you want to play these early because they do come into play tapped. Uh, I, I think, first of all, I'll say I, when you say big splashy spells, I agree, but I will also note none of these, I think, are good enough to run if that was the only half of the card. I, I do uh, agree. This too. isn't an outpost siege part, I don't think, situation where like it's good enough with one mode or a Boros charm. I don't think any of these five cards are probably good enough to run if that was all the card was. Right. And let's actually read out some of those for folks listening. There's the white one, Amiria's Call, seven mana mixed two angels, gives your team indestructible, and then of course is the land on the other side. Uh, there's the blue one, seven mana, draw cards equal to the number of cards in your hand, plus one, and then you have no maximum hand size for the rest of the game. The black one, Agadim's Awakening, three and X, you return from your graveyard to the battlefield to any number of target creature cards that have different mana costs of X or less, which is a restriction I'm not particularly fond of. Uh, the red one does damage to creatures. The green one lets you look at the top seven cards of your library and puts a creature from among them onto the battlefield. If it's a tiny creature, it gets a small buff of some plus one counters. And yet, like, I look at each one of these and I'm like, I don't know if I want to pay that much mana for some of these effects. These all feel a little, like... Seven mana to make two angels? I don't know, the red one, pay a bunch of mana to deal a bunch of damage to... I can play a Blasphemous Act, I don't need this. Like, that's kind of the impression that I get. I'm not really sure that I'm fond of playing these as spells. And so even if I treat them as lands with an option later in the game if I draw them, I don't know, I look at Agadim's Awakening and I'm just like, you're kind of a gruesome menagerie more than you are a big living death kind of spell. I'm not sure that I want to cast this one ever. That doesn't seem like a game-winning position to me. I could play a Torment of Hailfire instead. So yeah, it's just so funny to me to look at these mythic spells that have so much flexibility and I'm still just like, yeah, I'm not sure that these are necessarily worth it. They're not bad, but they're just kind of like making me shrug a little bit. Well, and, and to be clear, I'm not saying that you sh that, that they're still not playable because that they might be based on some other things we'll probably get into here in a few minutes. But I think that's something I think you should be conscious of when you're doing your evaluation, that immediately you should be aware that like these probably aren't quite good enough if this was the only side. So therefore you need to then do some evaluation beyond just, oh, this is cool, I want to run it. I, yeah, I think how much you're paying for some of these spells, I like I said, I, I think they are very, very powerful for the standard format right now. But I think for Commander, some of these, at least this Mythic Cycle right here, I don't really think that they're going to make too much of an impact. I think the commons, and un, well, the uncommons, I should say, uh, of the dual face cards, that's where these are going to be the, the splashiest. Well, now, now the, the the power here, though, is you do have the option, and we should focus on, on this because it does matter. Um, you know, the downside elsewhere is these lands come into play tapped. You have an mm -hmm. option to skirt around that here. You can spend that three life and have these come into play untapped. So that's where things get interesting because that eliminates some of the opportunity cost to, to playing it as a land that's not necessarily going to always come into play tapped. Um, sure. That really makes it tricky then. R right. But it is, again, for me, like, 
I want a swamp that will help up my Cabal Stronghold or my Cabal Coffers. I might want a forest that I can find when I'm playing Landfall. Um, if I'm playing a monocolor deck, I'll probably want more planes to trigger an Emiria the Sky Ruin on my battlefield. So like there is a cost to yeah. taking away the basic land slots that I, I really feel these kind of impact a little bit. And that is a, a very hidden cost, but it is definitely one that sticks out to me. So these are very interesting. I don't know that I can necessarily fault anyone for playing these, yep. but they don't personally strike my fancy like Matt said nearly as much as some of the uncommon ones do like those actually i find way more interesting even though they do come untapped on on the other side there's some uncommon spells in the set that i'm actually a lot more intrigued by well joey let's get into some of these uncommons because i really think that the the best ones at least that i'm looking forward to playing do come at that that uncommon and rare spot um Balaged recovery is great um it's a regrowth for three mana but also has the ability to be played as a land so if you you know have this as your third land in your opening hand you can play that right away and it's fine but having a three mana regrowth isn't anything bad especially when you consider eternal witness costs three mana um regrowth is only two mana so adding a little bit extra on the mana cost to have that flexibility i think at least is worth it uh, what do you guys think of validate recovery I wouldn't quite compare it to Eternal Witness because, like, I want to reanimate my Eternal Witnesses. Sure, but sure. I love Battlegate Recovery, like, a lot. I will play this as a perfectly fine early game tapped land that is perfectly fine for me and also have a late, like, a super late game play. This card is optimal when it's really late and I want to get a specific card back. Like, either of those modes seem perfectly worth taking up a spell slot for me here that can also double as a type of like yeah i'm i'm kind of over the moon about this particular one in a way that like when i look at down and dirty from earlier in the show like i mean yeah that one's fine but i never want to cast the down half here i'm perfectly happy if i do get a tapped land that also has potential power this later in the game like i don't know i didn't like the uh the the black mythic that gets stuff out of the graveyard but i really like this green uncommon that does it yeah i think the beauty of this card is you are going to use this side of it or at least have opportunity to use it more often than you will with those five mythics mm -hmm. um so yes you are it's always going to come into play tapped short of you know an amulet vigor in play or something um and that's not great but I think the opportunities this is going to provide for you to pull something huge back from your graveyard, the amount of I think the amount of times the land coming into play tapped is going to be a problem is a smaller number than the amount of times having access to a regrowth as well as the opportunity to make it a land is going to be beneficial. Yeah. Unlike the mythics, these sort of provide like effects that are small that we're familiar with but since they are also small that means that the amount that we're paying for this extra flexibility is also small too and that's what i think makes the difference for me here yeah i think a lot of people we need to to figure out if we're evaluating the spell as it's a spell that makes sure you hit your land drops or it's a land that you can cast later on in the game and mm. finding out how that applies to your deck specifically is going to make a lot of difference with all of these cards not just with balagate recovery yeah, let's get to some of those other examples. What are other ones that you guys like? There's two I'm going to lump here together because I think they're similar in that specific decks want them. We have uh, Colony Ambush, which is two in a green. Target creature you control fights. Target creature you don't control. Um, there's just not a ton of instant speed fight effects. And there are some decks built around doing just that. So this is one of those cards we talked about earlier, Boros Charm, you know, the indestructible mode on Boros Charm is maybe worth having, even if there's no other modes. Um, 
this is maybe worth it in a fight effect deck, an instant speed fight effect. There's not a lot of those out there, and maybe you want as many as are possible. This might just be worth it even if you never use the land side. And having the option to make it into a land if you happen to have four other fight effects in hand and don't need it, that's pretty, pretty useful. I oh, the redundancy there. That's yeah. that's another great thing. Like the fact that these are kind of redundant effects, whereas the mythics are trying to be more special necessarily. So they're yeah. like one of the only things that can do that compared to you've got a lot of these. Like the fact that I love the redundancy point there. That's a great way of evaluating these. Love that, Dana. And Kazol's Fury is the same thing. It's it's same cost, two and a red for an instant. Um, and it's basically a fling as additional cost to cast a spell, sacrifice a creature, and it deals damage equal to sacrifice creatures power to any target. So you're, you're paying one more for that fling effect. But again, there's not a ton of fling effects in the game. And if your deck is cares about doing that kind of thing, or oftentimes has a bunch of giant bodies that you want the option to fling it after you clock somebody with that 25, 25, whatever it is, um, that's almost useful just on that face side alone and being able to be desperate and play it as a land. That's really good utility there too. So I think those are two cards where those effects are rare enough that decks that want them might only care about one side and you're getting a free opportunity to make it a land on the other side that if you use once every 15 times to see the card, why great. That's just extra bonus for you. Um, well, Dana, I also have two that I think are real spicy. Uh, Valakut Awakening is two in a red for an instant that says, put any number of cards from your hand on the bottom of your library, then draw that many plus one. Um, I think that is an excellent filtering card. There's a lot of mono red decks out there that just need some way of filtering out all these dead draws they're getting. Um, and this is a great way to recycle them without having to loot them away and throw them into the graveyard. Um, it's super powerful. And even if you're in some sort of spell slinger deck, uh, Niv Mizzet and Perrin, I know for sure, mm -hmm. cast this, draw something, cycle everything away, and then draw all those cards again. You're getting a lot of cast triggers for Psychosis Crawler and all those types of creatures that want you to be actively drawing cards. Um, but then also a card that actually I just saw when we were going through the show notes, so this is going to be new to me, um, Malakir Rebirth is kind of nuts for an instant speed spell. Um, it is just choose one or choose target creature. You lose two life until end of turn. That creature gains when this creature dies, return it to the battlefield tapped under its owner's control for only one black mana. That seems insane for some commanders that you want to be having around. Um, Joey, I'm sure you might want to find room for this in your um, your Sir Conrad deck, for example. Conrad, maybe. Sir Graven is... Uh, not yeah. Sir Graven. Graven, Predator, Captain, that one. Sir Graven. <laughs> I mean, he, he is pretty noble. I, I, I'll i give him a Sir title. Uh, there you, but like, that's just it. I would pay one mana for these effects already. In fact, oh, yeah. I think these effects naturally do cost one mana. So another one mana version that also has a way more flexible version on the other side... Uh, sweet deal i'm not it's really no skin off of my back to acquire that effect and like in your graven deck the losing two life is also a bonus it's also a boon in, in yeah exactly in like a Grenzo dungeon warden deck the putting the cards in the bottom with valkut awakening mm -hmm. is a oh, bonus goodness. there like that's amazing in that deck yeah and, and and like i said like these are 
they all feel like I would pay this much mana for the regular effect anyway. The other one that really sticks out to me is Glass Pool Mimic. Mm-hmm. So that's the three mana, zero, zero, shapeshifter rogue. You may have it enter the battlefield as a copy of a creature you control, except it's a shapeshifter rogue in addition to its other types. Now, that's not a huge effect necessarily. Like, you can get a clone of just a creature that you control like, ah, I don't know. Like, is that necessarily useful? Well, I mean, according to some of the data that we see here, yeah, that is about the rate that we would pay for that ability. For example, Cackling Counterpart shows up in nearly 5,000 decks, and that's three mana to create a token that is a copy of a creature you control. So like added flexibility on that one as a land, but also that's sort of the going rate for that type of clone anyway. Like those, like I, I think the redundancy effect that you brought up, Dana, and also the fact that these are kind of like sort of the similar mana costs for these abilities and then we get free extra flexibility that's what makes me feel really way more secure with a whole bunch of these and makes me really really like them though again matt we should definitely reiterate evaluate these as the spell more than a lands don't take out basics for these make sure that you keep your mana base precious because you don't want to run into a situation where you don't have enough lands and you always have to use these as lands because if you always have to use these as lands that's not going to work out great it it physically hurt me when somebody said they they can go down to 20 eight lands plus some of these <laughs> to stay oh. at 35 lands i oh that, that that hurt me so bad that physically hurt me and also all of our listeners te- now too ooh, yeah, like, no, that's it, a dangerous yeah, precedent make sure make sure you are putting these into land slots treat this like a temple of the false god if you're going to put it in your deck still make sure it's occupying a spell slot not a land because if you if you're oh, man i just <laughs> i'm i'm flustered now because 28 lands plus some of these just well, in the other problem with treating them as lands is every time you play these as a land, if you're counting it as a land, you have less lands in your deck. So, so you're now you've cast it as a spell, and it's no longer a land. That's one less land you have an option. You know, it's no not in your hand. You're going to eventually use all your lands. <laughs> like, like you're you're, you're right. hitting less lands. It gets the the more of these in your deck that you're treating as lands, or excuse me, as yeah, as lands that you cast as spells. The more that compounds, it makes you more likely to miss your land drop. So, mm-hmm. be very very cautious with these. I would say when it comes to making decisions for your deck, they're super cool cards. And they're really easy to um, evaluate poorly, I think. I mean, modal cards are themselves really difficult to evaluate. That's why we wanted to have a show topic about this, because it's not an easy thing. I'm not even sure that we perfectly nailed it. No, No, I don't. I don't either. My thoughts are still evolving on these. Yeah. (laughs) I I just think the big thing with, with these, if you're taking a land out of your deck to put these in there, put them in with the land side face up, because that's what you're going to be playing it more as. (laughs) I mean, yeah. And and so that's just it. Like when you are looking at modal spells, like evaluate when does each of the different modes of this spell function best? Like are those modes the most optimal around the same turn number, for example, or is one mode better in the early game? Is one mode better in the late game? Um, And also, how often do you actually need or use all of the modes? Do some of these give you the illusion of choice, or are they actually always like sort of maybe equally or relatively equally useful? Um, You know, which mode do you end up using most often? Make sure that you take a very honest look at that. Like, what are you almost always using this card as? And 
if that's the case, how much mana would you pay for the streamlined version of whatever that effect is? Like those can all be very, very important lessons when you're taking a look at a, a spell that provides you with a ton of different choices like these Endicar lands. And it's a, a really fascinating thing. So even if like some of the lands I'm a little shaky on and some of the lands I maybe like a little bit more, like these, this is definitely a very fascinating design place for them to have explored. And I'm really happy that they did because there's so much to learn from it. Yeah, I, I love the point that you had about how much mana are you paying more on top of the base level effect mm -hmm. to get the flexibility and, and get you know a little extra options on that card. I love that point. Um, if you're wanting to spend three more mana over just the baseline version of that, probably want to reevaluate why you're playing that card because that's that is a lot when you can just get more efficient in your deck building. The, the last thing I would add here is. Um, the evaluations we're doing, we're, we're trying to kind of be general here, but a lot of this does apply to how we play and how we brew our decks and maybe even to a degree the meta we play in, those things might not necessarily hold true for you. So try to do your evaluation about these new cards as well as basically any modular card um, based on what you do and how your deck plays and how you build and how you play. Those things are going to be different from person to person to person to a degree. Disallow may be the best counter spell in your deck based on how you brew and where you play and how you play. Mm -hmm. Just because it wasn't in mind doesn't mean that wasn't true for you. So a lot of this stuff is very, very singular to the person and just try to bear that in mind. And because you've came to a different conclusion than somebody else doesn't mean you're necessarily wrong. You just might be in a different place with these cards than than we are. No, Dana, you're you're always wrong, and that's just like <laughs> Dana. I mean, really, every card in your deck is a modal card because you always have the choice not to play them. You always have that's the choice fair. not to destroy my cabal coffers. Like that's the correct mode in all of the cases. You, right? you don't have to play that Nile spell bomb. You can play something else. <laughs> you don't have to exile Joey's graveyard. I, I could anyway. play Relic of Progenitus or Tormund's Crypt. I have multiple all right, all options. Right. No, no, no. We're off the rails again. We got to shut it down. With that, we need to call this episode to a close. So, uh, thank you guys so much for joining me. And if our listeners want to get in touch with us, where is it that they can find you all? Matt? So you can find me at Mathemus55 on Twitter. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings, we are streaming games every Wednesday night. Uh, Twitch.tv slash EDHRecCast. Come join all the games and watch it. We have great guests on every week, so it's always fun to get to play with other people in the community. And Dana. You can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach. You can hear me on my other podcast on Monday, CMDR Central. You can read my articles at EDH Rec, and you can find me as well as Joey and Matt at patreon.com slash EDH Recast, where you can sign up for multiple different tiers, including one that lets you join our Discord, where there's an option to hang out talk about dad jokes with all of us and what? suggest creative ways to blow up Joey's graveyard. So rude. So, so, so rude. I, I can't believe that you guys are using the outros and the Patreon plugs to continue there's, talking about blowing up my graveyard. There's, there's anyway. a new channel we made that says destroy Joy's graveyard. It's just That's, suggestions. It's, it's a private channel, though. You're not yeah, allowed in, Joey. You're not allowed in, Joey. Don't give them ideas. Anyway, I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. You can find the cast at EDHRecCast on Facebook and on Twitter. And if you have a question, you can contact us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. Our thanks to Josh Lee Kwai and the entire team at the Command Zone who handle all 
all of the post-production work on the podcast. And of course, our thanks to our sponsors, TCG Player and CardKingdom.com. You can find them using the price info links on Idiotrek or by visiting CardKingdom.com slash Idiotrek to show your support for the show. And don't forget about our $100 Card Kingdom store credit giveaway. Leave us a podcast review on iTunes or Google Play or wherever else you listen to the show. Reminder that you do need to have a Card Kingdom account to receive the store credit. And also a reminder that our patrons are automatically entered. We are announcing the winners on Twitter on the 25th. So stay tuned. We will be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Bye.